are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is brought to you by Great Northern Bow Hunting. If you're in the market for a bow quiver, you should go to greatnorthernbowhunting.com and check out their line. They have all different mounting options with different types of crippers and different lengths of hoods. Be sure to go to a long hood if you use long broadheads like I do uh, to keep those fully covered and safe. If you're a savvy bow hunter and you already have a Great Northern Quiver, you should go to the accessories page and check out the new foam inserts. They are now a two-layer foam and uh, really like them. They're awesome. They also have the extra straps. And if you don't have a gadget adapter, you can grab one of those if you need to mount a fishing reel, a hog light, or a string tracker, or something like that. And with that, let's get on to the show. Welcome to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Steve Angel, and I am excited and happy to welcome my good friend and co-host at large that we joke about sometimes, Mr. Tom Jorgensen, back to the show. How's it going, buddy? Uh, it's going awesome. Glad to be back. It's It's been a little too long, but uh, glad to be here now. How are you doing? I'm doing good. And it's it, it to be honest, it's not just that it's been too long getting you on the podcast. It, I'm, I'm starting to think the only way that you and I are going to get to actually sit down and and make an hour for a good conversation is to schedule a podcast around it because both of us are just kind of crazy busy lately. Yeah, it, uh, it, it has been, and, and thank goodness we got this one planned out because, yeah, it's been too long. And we were uh, – so we, we're just back from, from Compton's. This is, this is part of like four or five different recordings that I'm doing fairly close to around the Compton's rendezvous, and, you know, it was – Several people came by the booth and was talking, and and I was sitting there. I had one of Scott Spray's fly rod in the booth, and I'm ashamed to say it was that pretty, gorgeous blue um, three-weight blue halo, and that thing has not seen water yet. Uh, so hmm. I, I feel your pain, man. I, I, I can't make time to actually go out and, and, and hit the river, and I was planning to do it this weekend, and lo and behold, my, my good buddy Bob Brum hit me with a, a pretty large string order, but I'm not complaining, so I'll be I'll be making strings most of this weekend. Well, uh, had Lori not been watching over that fly rod, it might have hit the water without you. <laughs> uh, opened by and saw it, and it was, it was gorgeous. You know, Even it was, better than the pictures. It was funny. I, did you get to meet Scott? He actually came by the booth for like an hour, hour and a half. I missed him by like five minutes. Uh, I hate to hear that. Yeah. But, he, you know, it was funny. He said... Uh, I said something about, you know, one of these days I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a few extra days up here and actually do some fly fishing. He said, well, why don't you do it now? You got your fly rod and there's that nice little that nice little pond on the on the drive in. I said, yeah, there's signs everywhere. They won't let you fish in that, buddy. So, uh-huh. uh, but he, he conveniently didn't see the no fishing signs, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway... Uh, so I was hoping to actually sit down with you at Compton's and record this, and that just didn't work out. So, uh, but I'm I am I'm I'm very excited to hear some of these stories tonight because we're gonna we're gonna spend the next hour or so kind of digesting your your most recent hunt to uh, the the land down under. You just got back from Australia recently. Yeah, we, one week. Um... Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, just kind of jumping right ahead, the one thing I learned about this is uh, don't tell your podcasting friends about a big hunt you have coming up because <laughs> you guys were talking about it, and I felt an awful lot of pressure uh, to, to get it done. But 
just kidding. But. I'd love to tell you I feel real real bad about that, but I'm I'm now I'm going to take credit on the success you had because uh, previous hunts that you've done, I've kept my mouth shut. So I think you owe me one. Yeah. No, it was a it was a biggie, and uh, I had Mister B Hag on and, and and spoke about it with uh, the uh, uh, Jay and Karen Campbell, and it's like, man, every time I heard it mentioned, I'm like, oh, I better do good. Um, <laughs> I think I tell you though, got me down to the range, got me practicing. Uh, coming out of March, I had that new uh, lightweight longbow that I had taken on a couple pig hunts, and I had uh, a little over two months, but I was going from forty-five to eighty-seven pounds, so I had to really crank up the uh, the exercise regimen. Right. Um, but by the end, I was shooting really good. Uh, arrows were all dialed in. Uh, everything was doing real good. Um, I, I think you wanted me to kind of talk a little bit about the logistics a little bit. Did you? Well, yeah, I, I mean, and I do want to get into some of your equipment, but I'll, I'll save those okay. those questions as we move forward. But yeah, let's let's just kind of start, you know, from the from the top. I know, uh, you know, I know this is a hunt you've been you had been wanting to do for a while. Uh, you wanted to get Africa, um, done first because of some of the political turmoil and so forth going on over there. But, you know, let's, let's just start from, start from day one when you started planning this thing, you know, uh, I guess, you know, how did you go about finding, uh, finding a guide and, and then any other planning that you did that you want to go into? Okay. So what's funny, if you go all the way back to the beginning, the Australia hunt started in Africa. Uh, I'd met a guy online uh, many years ago and we started BSing about arrows and performance and big game. And uh, that would be uh, Tim King from Texas. And he was getting ready for a moose hunt. And I was starting to build arrows for Cape Buffalo. And we just hit it off and uh, it was real funny, you know, I'd do a hunt down in Georgia one year and then the next year I'd skip it and he'd show up and we were never at the same place at the same time. Uh, fast forward about five years and uh, met him in South Africa in a hunting camp. Uh, and I don't know, it was a couple days in and he talked about hunting Argentina for water buffalo and uh, I just finished a Cape Buffalo hunt. I was just about to go on one, one or the other, and he was getting ready to go on one. And he's, we started talking at, uh, at the dinner table and he, you know, have you thought about spot and stock, uh, Asiatic water Buffalo? Cause I'm kind of thinking about Australia being my next stop. Uh, just get into something that's free range and no fences. And I said, well, funny, that's, yeah, that's very high on my list. Um, so that was a couple of years ago and March of 2017, I had an email from him talking a little more about it and traded some more emails back and forth. Um, then after Africa, uh, for both of us last summer, 2018, uh, we picked it up really in earnest and started scouring all different forums and uh, different, you know, just gathering info uh, on every different place we could, uh, putting away money, kind of 
getting lined up with the logistics of uh, Australia versus, you know, other places. And so, you know, working through it, there were a few people he wanted to talk to face to face and they were all going to be at uh, the Dallas Safari Club, which was a hop, skip and a jump for him. So he took that task and went and kind of did final interviews and um, found uh, an outfitter. And it looked like he had a really good uh, piece of land to hunt, some experience, a very experienced guide. So came back and we kind of sorted through the final details. Um, you know, the biggest, biggest thing for both of us was um, uh, follow-up shots. Uh, you know, when you're doing a, a con- more controlled situation where you're in a hide or something, mm-hmm. uh, it's not as important to have that um, backup gun like right over your shoulder. Uh, when you're out in the wide open hiding behind a three inch round tree, uh, with a stick bow, um, it's good to have that person there, but as a bow hunter, you don't want them to be overly anxious. So, you know, that was a pretty big deciding factor in who we went with. You know, if, if all things are a similar amount of logistical complexity and a similar financial outlay, uh, you know, who, who are the people you're going to be with counts for a lot, especially right. if you're in a potentially dangerous situation. Yeah. So, uh, he felt really good with one of the, the guides. Um, I felt really good with the, um, the outfitter himself who would be my guide. And so we signed on for two, uh, one-on-one, uh, hunts for seven days in the Northern territory. And, uh, we wanted opening season, so we had to get some deposit checks off really fast. So we got the first hunt of the the season. It's a very small deal. I mean, it's, uh, there's, I think about maybe it was 10 hunters over eight weeks or something like that. It's a very limited um, capacity, and we got right on it. So uh, we were there. Nothing had been hunted uh, for about 10 months. Uh, when we got there. So that was part of the the plan. Australia had some, so, you know, as soon as we're booked in, uh, the outfitter took care of the travel from Darwin, uh, the in-country charters and land transportation and all of that. Uh, we had to buy our airfare to get to Darwin. Uh, so we got those booked. Um, one great thing, those tickets were running, I think like 2,200, 2,500 bucks. Uh, there was a point in, I think, March or early April where something hit and prices dropped as low as like 1200 So we got a good deal on airfare. It helped a, a lot. Um, and then there's certain things about the your visitor um, visa in Australia that's unique to them. So we had to make those applications and get those taken care of. So that was kind of all the kind of lead up to the hunt itself. So a couple things, um, with regards to the, the guide and choosing the guide and the, you know, the backup shots. And, and I, you and I have talked a good bit about your, your Africa hunt. And you just mentioned, you know, in Africa, you were hunting in a, a hide or a blind and here it was spot and stalk. Mm-hmm. Um, so f- for those that, that, cause I actually, I got an idea, but I don't know for, hundred percent, you know, compared to Cape Buffalo, uh, which can obviously be very deadly with a, a nickname of black death, but, 
Um, how does the how does the Australian or the how does the Australian or the Asiatic water buffalo compare to um, the Cape with regards to temperament, uh, level of of dangerous, etc. Hmm. So as far as being dangerous, um, I would say that 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 animal is very dangerous. It has all the same tools. You know, it's a a big animal and uh, I think if it wants to get after something, that whatever it is is going to be in trouble. As far as temperament, it's hard to say. You know, you look at a, a, a herd of, you know, 12 or 15 Cape buffalo, and maybe, you know, 10 or 12 of them are generally scaredy cats, and then there's that a couple bad bad animals in there. Uh, when we're spotting and stalking, we're, we're, we're bumping into a bull here and there. Typically, they're, they're, they're pretty quick to want to run the other direction. It's interesting, you know, it's the real dominant bulls, if they see something they don't understand, they're quick to approach it, to check it out. So, you know, we had uh, one of the tricks one the guy did was he flapped his baseball hat, you know, just made a ruffling noise that was totally unnatural. And, you know, an immature bull is going to run away because it doesn't know what's about to, you know, uh, come after it. Right. Or a big bull, a mature bull is going to, you know, go look at it. That only works to a point, right? I mean, I'll get to 50 yards and then stare it down. But I was more concerned about scrub bulls. You know, they can be 50% bigger. You think about a, a bull in a, a bullfight or, you know, running with the bulls, you know, and all the people that get, you know, those things are absolutely bad tempered. Um, they got all the same tools. So go into so, that just a little bit to make sure everybody yeah. understands, because I and I, it's very possible I don't even understand this well, Tom, because I hear the term scrub and I'm thinking it's like a like a cull or something that you want to take out of the herd. So, oh no, yeah. So okay, um, in Australia, there's a, a, a handful of native species of animals right your kangaroos and your wallabies and your koalas and stuff like that um as a hunter all of that is off limits right that's you know native uh fauna they had a lot of things brought over so there's a lot of things that are are feral right we know about the problems they have with feral cats and feral rabbits and uh these things right so there are a lot of cows that have gone feral, right? Multi-generation, naturally reproducing. These things are just wandering around. And, you know, there's, there's big, big bulls out there just wandering around in the bush. And, you know, they're 1,500, 1,600 pounds, big horns. Um, they, they know one way to deal with you know, perceived danger and that's smash it in the ground and stomp on it. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, a scrub bull is a, a feral, uh, bovine and, uh, they're gigantic, massive, strong, incredible beasts. And they're all different colors and horn configurations. And there's a very wide variety, uh, of, uh, attributes, but, you know, for temperament, I, I, I'd be more concerned about them than the average buffalo. But uh, some of those bulls, some of those buffalo were 
I mean, nothing I'd want to mess with. I, I, yeah. But a, but a scrub bull, the term scrub bull has nothing scrub to bull. do with the feral bovine, nothing to do with a, an, a, the Asiatic buffalo that you really no. went over that to pursue. Right. No. Okay. Thank you for clearing it. I just wanted to make sure. Cause I, oh, sure. I, after, after we chatted just briefly Saturday, uh, you know, I, I figured out that it wasn't the case, but I want to make sure we clarified it because it, it, it's deceiving because of some of the terms we use here in the States. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Happy to. So yeah, as far as danger, I mean, it's, it's, I think one of the things where if you're looking to stick an arrow into something and something goes wrong and it gets angry, um, I think having one is probably prudent having a backup gun. Right. Um, and then, you know, uh, well, we'll get to that part of the story in a little bit, I suppose. Okay. So, uh, I want to get into the actual, the day you arrive, but the only other thing I can think of to ask before we go into, uh, you're actually arriving on the, on the continent is how does the, what's the, what's the hunting license process? Is that, is that a, uh, is that like a draw or is it like over the counter? How does, how does that work? And then who is that actually paid to? Yeah. So, um, so I was not hunting on, uh, public land. I was not doing any, um, not hunting anything that required any special governmental, um, needs. So you just do it, um, when your outfitter's operating on, uh, concession land, you just work through the outfitter on that. Okay. So that yeah. makes sense. And the other thing I also wanted to touch back on, cause we, I talked a little bit when we had Jimmy B hag on the show who you know, obviously lives in Australia, the, you mentioned the, the native species and those being off limits. And if I remember correctly, basically they're owned by the crown. It's a little outside my comfort zone. Okay. All I, all I know was not to shoot anything that would have naturally <laughs> been born in Australia. Yeah, and if, I, I'm wanting to say that's the way Jimmy Jimmy explained it. I may be a little bit off, but but just a just a yeah, unique but, scenario. If a if a Rocky Mountain elk would have walked through camp, I would have felt real fine about that. But um, no, it's <laughs> um, there was um, crocodiles in camp and off limits and. Uh, saw some wallabies off limits, you know, I'm just, you know, any, anything that belongs there, you just leave be. And I'm assuming that it, from a, just from a, an animal sighting perspective, how it, I, I'm sure it was probably drastically different than, than Africa, just because the, I don't know, the, the, the number and, and, uh, size of the herds and so forth that you see in Africa, I'm assuming that what, well, let me just ask this question other than, you know, going down to the river, seeing the crocodiles going out and looking for the bulls. Was there a lot of other wildlife just running around that you were just like constantly looking for the next uh, species that you hadn't seen yet? Or was it a bit more like a, a, a desert or I don't know. It's hard, yeah. hard for me to ask the question because so, I don't, all I know about Australia is what I see in movies. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about uh, Crocodile Dundee, that's kind of the area that the uh, the Outback Adventure was based in. So, uh, rock escarpments, floodplains, a little bit of uh, you know green swamps, you know some some springs, 
you know, for the most part, it's, um, you know, where I was at least was not lush. So you look at the species that are adapted to it and you have, uh, you know, the, the feral buffalo, the feral cows, uh, the dingoes, feral cats, uh, a few lizards, some crocodiles, um, you know, no deer species live out there, no kangaroos, no koalas. Um, and so the number of species was limited and, you know, it was, uh, over half a million acres. So you're talking about big hunks of land, no fences or anything. So there's nothing to contain the animals. So where, you know, in Africa with a, uh, a, a feeding situation or a controlled herd, you could see a hundred animals in a day and they're all within 50 yards over there. You know, you might see a hundred animals a day and it's spread out over six miles, you know? So, um, I definitely, you know, it was one of those things where you, you know, you look, you're on an escarpment, you look down, you're like, Hey, that's a nice bowl. Like there's a Buffalo out there. And then you start looking, you know, picking through and you're like, Oh, well, you know, there's, uh, a herd of domestic cows over here. And then there's some feral cows over there and we can maybe get down through here, but then there's a, you know, looks like a cow with a calf and a bull over here. We want to avoid them. So like you're seeing animals around and if anything, there's just enough that it makes it kind of hard, uh, to stock, but, um, more spread out. Okay. And that makes sense. And I just got to ask before I move on, uh, at, at any point in time, did you have the desire to stand in front of a Asiatic Buffalo and hum at it and cock your head sideways? <laughs> like, I'm just kidding. I know you wouldn't do that. No. <laughs> I had to ask. So back to the, so you're, let's, let's take up to, you know, the week before you, you leave to head over there. So, you know, what, what kind of what kind of gear uh, could you and were you taking and were mm-hmm. you know did you really have to plan out what you were taking with you from a um, limitation perspective of what you could and couldn't take? Oh yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, what was my limit? Twenty kilos was going to be my final checked bag limit. So even though I could take multiple bags and heavy bags when I was starting off my trip, I knew that by the time I got there, I'd have to have that pared down quite a bit. So, um, I had, uh, basically it's an M4 carbine rifle case that has my two piece takedown longbow. I had 15 arrows, um, one field point. Uh, a pair of binoculars in there, uh, my quiver, uh, and then a whole bunch of like boonie hat, uh, lightweight merino gloves, neck gaiters, uh, shooting gloves, uh, just all that stuff. As much as I could packed in extra knocks, rubber bands, um, you know, whatever. So all that stuff was packed in the M4 carbine case, which I uh, lock and check through TSA. And that is the bulk of my weight. Uh, then I had my uh, carry-on bag, which is a, a backpack. And in that, I fit you know two pair of pants, uh, two long-sleeve merino tees, uh, one medium-weight merino hoodie, uh, one puffy jacket, uh, and then my uh, 
two pair of sandals. So one basically a pair of flip flops for showers and bebopping around camp. One set of uh, Keens, you know, covered toe, uh, kind of like sneakers. Uh, and then all of my uh, camp clothes. So swim trunks, uh, shorts, and then a couple short sleeve solid color merino tees, a uh, pair of sunglasses. So uh, pretty minimal there. Um, and it came in at 19.8 kilos. So I knew I'd be good. I was wearing the hiking boots that I hunt in uh, and then just, you know, casual clothes for, for travel. Uh, woke up on a Thursday morning, went to the airport here in Michigan. Uh, United canceled my quick flight uh, and gave me two different flights instead. So I ended up going uh, to Denver. It was a couple hours, couple hour layover to LA, couple hour layover, uh, a little over 15 hours to Sydney. Uh, we landed right at sunup. Um, went through customs, dealt with all of that. Little bit of a, you know, they just want to talk about weapons and serial numbers and what's a gun and is this really a long bow and, you know, declare. One thing I'll say, if anybody's going to Australia, I think the best advice I got is declare everything and then just have them shrug their shoulders and say, we don't care. So, um, <laughs> because if there's anything you don't fail to declare, there are penalties and fines involved that you don't want to deal with. So like the boots I was wearing had been worn on a farm that had cattle. So I declared them right They're right. Clean spotless, but uh, I declared it because you didn't want to be questioned. Um, then I had a couple hour layover. So I got a little bite of breakfast and I jumped on a flight to Darwin. And I think that was about four hours, uh, up to there. Got out midday, went downtown. Um, Darwin, very cool seaside city. Um, and this, nice is, old this is Darwin. District. Australia. Australia, okay. Northern Territory. Sure. Yep. Yeah, uh, a lot of history. Um, you know, and, and for as cool as it was in the daytime, I was told, you know, not to go out at night. Um be aware of my, my, my belongings and my surroundings. So I don't know if people are overly concerned or not. Um, but I want to check the area out. So I got in a day early. I want to make sure that if my bow got lost, it had a chance to get to me. And I met up with, uh, one of the guides there in town. We were trading messages on Facebook and he's like, Hey, I'm going to go out and hang out with this archery guy, uh, with a buddy of mine. You want to go? And I'm like, yeah. So Ended up spending all day uh, drinking Great Northern beer with uh, a big uh, hunter from Australia, um, uh, bow company pro staff guy, looking at all of his mounts. He actually, when we were going to the Bighorns last year, he was actually he met Jason Hairston and uh, the store and had him autograph a catalog for him. So talk about timing. But he had that there, and uh, anyway, hung out in his archery shop and BS for a while, and then now, wait, uh, wait a minute. He would yeah. well while we were hunting in the big just horns, before we went to the big horns, and that was he, the same week that it was uh, like a week or two before. Yeah, wow, before he passed. 
Talk about and, timing. Uh, yeah, so we just met him right before he passed. Wow. So, but you know, we were talking about gear and uh, he was talking about hunting in Alaska and Canada. We talked about hunting Montana and uh, just wonderful host and uh, just a, a great chance encounter. Um, and then we all went back to town, had a nice dinner, uh, met up with uh, Tim. And in the meantime, uh, Tim had decided to change his one-on-one hunt uh, to uh, two hunters to one guide. So uh, his son Jake wanted to hunt. And so the two of them were in Darwin, met up with them, had a good dinner. And we all went back to our, our hotels and then we met up at the airport in the morning. And... We flew to a uh, little outpost, and our outfitter, my guide, was there to pick us up in the, the land cruiser and take us to camp. And that took a couple hours of driving to get there. Um, got on the property, and I think it took us another hour or so to get to where the, the tents were set up. Um, camp over there very practical, some kind of ingenious things about it. It needs to be able to be fully ripped out fairly quickly because if there's flooding, um, might need to move or if the Buffalo move, you might want to, you know, move camp or whatever. So tents, uh, the lowest temperature I saw the whole time I was there was a nighttime low of 71. The highest high was 94 if I recall. So, the tents are basically all mesh and get you a little breeze, which is nice. Uh, nice cots, um, uh, kind of a standard uh, cooking setup. But there was a little itty bitty Honda generator with a couple inputs into it. So, and then a solar panel. So we had two, maybe 80 quart um, angle coolers, but they were uh, electric. So one was configured to be a refrigerator and one was configured to be a freezer. Um, and so, and then a battery system backed up the generator and the, the solar. So like there were ice cubes, like it was, it was quite novel. Uh, you could have a, a cold pop when you got back to camp and, uh, the meat was all safe and everything. So, um, then the other input was for a little pump. So in the crocodile pond down the hill, uh, there was a, a pump connected to an intake hose, and there was a 55-gallon drum with a, basically a fire pit edged up against it. So you'd kick on the pump, fill the barrel full of water, uh, light the fire. It would start warming up the water for showers for later. Um, take it over to the boiling barrel for the, the skulls, you know, fill that up. It was a, a, a 55 gallon drum basically cut in half with legs on it. So you could put uh, firewood underneath. And uh, if you had a skull to boil out, you just drop it in there, but it saved a whole lot of packing water back and forth. Sure. Um, and then a little shower facility, a little toilet facility. Um, so it was basic, but everything was highly mobile. It all fits on one one trailer, and it can be moved around readily. Um, my tent, like I said, really comfy cot, 
and uh, a good breeze. So I was kind of sleeping on top of the covers all week. So, um, so, so basic, but all the comforts of home. Everything you need. Yep. Yeah. No, it was great. Uh, so we get there, kind of settle in, string the bows up, uh, start taking practice shots, and everybody's shooting good. Uh, <laughs> Tim and Jake are shooting amazing, and I was much surprised that I was I was hanging, um, shooting better than my average by a long shot. So that was really good getting into it, um, cranking off practice shots at like 32 yards. And just drilling it, so it's like it's a great feeling when you when you're in camp and you need it all to work and it's working. So by the time we got to camp, you know, so I left on Thursday morning. By the time we're stringing bows, it's uh, Sunday afternoon in Australia. So I'm burning a lot of vacation days just getting there. Um, so at this point, how many how many how many days has transpired since you since you left Michigan? It's basically four four days. Yeah. Um, and before you crossed the date line, so maybe it's three and a half for three of actual time, but yeah. Right. And, and before we move forward, you, you, you've mentioned the, you know, your shooting and you, you actually worked a lot to make sure you were ready. Um, right. you haven't mentioned which bow you were, I know which bow you were shooting, but go ahead and just for everybody that's listening for the gearheads. Yeah. Tell us, tell us what, <laughs> what, what bow and, and then we'll All talk right. real briefly about the arrow setup too. But what, what bow were you shooting? So this trip, I only took one bow. Uh, it was my Black Widow 87-pound uh, longbow. It's 66 inches long, uh, two-piece takedown. Uh, the quiver I took, uh, it's kind of the only one I use anymore. I, I love it. It's that great northern uh, strap-on kickback. Uh, in the quiver, I had, um, so it's a Black Eagle carnivore 250 basically full length but that was too weak in spine with all the weight i put in the front so for those arrows i cut a, a deep impact black eagle in half so i have 16 inches of a 400 spine epoxied into the front end of that 250 carnivore uh, I pushed that down into the shaft with a John Hand uh, traditional archery solution, 250 grain stainless steel insert adapter combo, uh, 300 grain tough head on that, and then uh, I have two inches of aluminum footing, uh, you know, just behind the broadhead. And that's the arrow, 1,070 grains, 27% FOC. And was the, the, the bow, is that 87 at your draw length or 87 yeah. at 28? 87 at 30. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't think I ever scaled that at 28. Good bit of, good bit of oomph. Um, and, oh, yeah. And, and you and I, we, we know each other very well. I know exactly how sharp those things were. So. Um, those, scary. those, those tough heads were sharp. So, okay. I just want to make sure we, we covered it because we get talking about the actual hunt and I'll forget to go back and ask we you forget so. about it. Yeah. So, uh, went out for a hunt that night, you know, we were early, everything was good. Started seeing the floodplains, you know, got some stalking on some Buffalo, you know, kind of practice glass and things around. Um, 
I ended up through, I ended up instead of going with the guy that I thought I was going to be going out with the, uh, the outfitter guide. Uh, I went with the other guide that night. Um, I'll tell you what, it was hilarious. There was a, a bull that was, you know, we stalked within 20 yards of a bull within the first two hours we were out. Um, young bull, we decided we we're going to pass on it, but it was just a chance to kind of, for me and the guide to get to know each other and, uh, see how we move in the woods and, you know, see who was making how much noise and, uh, for me to see what he was doing with his rifle and for him to see what I'm doing with where I'm pointing my broadhead and everything. Um, so we, we got real close to that Buffalo, tried to creep in a little closer. Um, anyway, just kind of getting to know each other. And, um, the next Buffalo we saw after that was really close to this tree. And, uh, he's like, well, horns are too small, so we're not going to shoot it. I'm going to go learn them up a bit. And, uh, he, uh, And am I back? You are back. Man, how's Wi-Fi dropped? That's so okay. how do we normally deal with this? Uh, you didn't cut, stop Audacity, right? No, it's still going. Okay, so just um, I would just pick up where you left off, and I'll I'll splice it back in. So I'll just uh, I don't know where I left I, off. I can no, I, I mean I'm sorry. Oh. You dropped off right after I said uh, wanted to make sure I got that in about the gear. So. We'll just pick up from there and just go back. Repeat whatever you just said. So is that before I talked about the bow and the arrows? No, no, no. It was it oh, was right after. On. So so and I'll just I'll kind of prompt you here. So so yeah, Tom, sorry about that. Didn't wanna didn't wanna hold you up, but I want to make sure we got the gear discussion in. Otherwise I would <laughs> I would forget about it when we got into the sure. details of the hunt. Yep. Yep. Um yeah, so there's the the gear set up. Everything was kind of ready to go. Um, so that night, since everything was good, we went ahead and walked on out uh, on the floodplain. And so uh, it's kind of funny the um, way the guide thing worked out. I ended up with the guide that I didn't think I would be hunting with that night. Uh, so we walk out a couple hours in, you know, we bumped a few Buffalo back in the, uh, uh, it was a cow and some calves. There was a bull with them, but, um, you know, bumped into them, had the calves within 15 yards, maybe the cow at 20, the bull at 30, um, wind swirled a little bit. They got a little antsy. We worked around them. Uh, so we're just kind of like moseying along. And as it starts to get toward dusk, um, on the floodplain, all of a sudden there's a lot of buffalo in the distance and you know glassing them up with our 10 powers and um you can see a lot of a lot of them out there but a lot of them are half a mile mile two miles away uh so we you know find places where we can get trees between us and, and kind of sneak out toward them uh so the first stock we put in is um, a young bull and we can tell pretty quick that we're not actually gonna 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 try to put a shot on him but the guy's like well Let's, uh, let's practice stalking. Let's see if you have any creaks in your noise, you know, in your gear and your knees. Like let's, let's figure out, you know, uh, how to move and communicate. 
and let's see how close we can get. So we got within 20, maybe within 18. And, um, yeah, I'm seeing kind of what he's doing and he's watching what I'm doing, giving a few pointers and we get close. And after a while, uh, the bull walks off. No big deal. Uh, kind of go, we see another bull, can't see how good the horns are. So we kind of take off across the floodplain and it's pushing up toward dark. And, uh, when we can get a good look at him around a tree, it, the horns, he's not, not in the class we're looking for, right? We're looking for the older bulls. Um, so he says to me, he's like, you know, I haven't been out here hunting Buffalo in a year. Let me, let me see if I can count coup on them or I can't remember exactly how he said it. He didn't say count coup uh, as an Aussie, but, uh, he puts that tree between them and he slips off his flip flops. He's in sandals and takes off just straight line at him. And when that bull takes a step, he takes a side step and just keeps going. And he closes, uh, about a hundred yards on this thing fast and, uh, gets up to that tree and, takes one of his flip flops and throws it right at the thing's, you know, hind quarter and hits it. <laughs> and that thing takes off and he's looking to see what bapped him and, uh, flipping his head around side to side and backward and spinning circles and eventually just runs off. It was, uh, absolutely hilarious. But, um, he got his flip flops back on and, uh, we, uh, did a little still hunting into a couple other, a uh, little more densely uh, vegetation areas, and um, didn't uh, didn't get another stock on a buffalo that night. And uh, but it was a great first day, right? It was a, a great way to warm up. And uh, he wanted to hunt with me the following morning, so we went out and immediately, within ten minutes, we were on a, a hundred inch uh, class bull at about 60 yards and he was in the wide open generally working to us. We we're trying to figure out if he's going to cut left or right. There was a big escarpment, uh, rock Ridge, you know, coming out of the ground. He was either going to go left or right. And, uh, so we we're basically preparing to kind of run one direction or the other to ambush him. And something caught his attention behind him and he turned around, just walked away and we tried to keep up. We tried to find him again, um, spent all morning basically trying to get back. Uh, well, then we saw another Buffalo and we tried to get after him and that took us up to an area where there's typically more Buffalo. So it kind of turned into, you know, trying to find that good opportunity for a longbow range shot. And, uh, went back through a, a pig swamp and back up over a, a, a really good size, about a, a 300 foot high escarpment. So kind of a, a rock scramble up over the top. And from up there, we looked down. Now it's pushing noon and there's a beautiful bull laid up in the middle of this swamp uh, in the shade of a tree. And we have a bunch of scrub bulls between us and him. And it's, I don't know, a mile and a half off or so. So scramble down the hill, uh, cut across the swamp, keeping trees between us, you know, keeping the wind right. Um, and unfortunately, the time it took us to get there, he got up and kind of started grazing again. And he was grazing toward the downwind. So we're 
trying to kind of keep side sidestepping to him. And he pins us down. He turns where there's no place for us to hide. And we get stuck for a good long time, hiding behind one tree. And eventually he turns. You know, we put the moves on him. Great bull. Um, he set up uh, behind a tree with a rifle and said, you know, the last 20 yards are yours. It was maybe 50 yards to the, the bull. And um, the winds were getting finicky about that point. And I, I was just about to shooting position when uh, the nose went up and he caught me. Uh, I almost got that ball. It was, it was close. Um, as soon as he smelled, he ran out basically a hundred yards, turned and stood and watched. And he's like, I know something's there. So, uh, we presented ourselves and started walking toward the land cruiser. And it was really funny because he kept running toward the land cruiser and <laughs> we ended up in the situation where we'd just be walking steady and we'd get within about 75 yards and he'd run about 50 yards and stop and watch us and over and over and over we got to look at that bull and through 10 powers at 75 yards i mean that was a great bull uh got back to camp had a little lunch and uh rehydrated and decided to try a different area for the evening uh basically right out of camp so we went up a, a bank and and down the river uh bed uh during quite the drought there so there was no water in it uh, got the wind set up right, started coming back and had a situation where we we're in really tight timber and these banks are, I don't know, sometimes 50 or 60 feet vertical straight down to river bottoms and then straight back up the other side. So, you know, there's all these fingers of all these old, you know, dried up river channels and we end up on one where there's a deep water hole about the size of a pool table and a flipped over tree has opened up a spot for a big bull to lay down in and he heard us it was under 15 yards when he stood up and the shooting window was just nothing but hair and you couldn't tell which end was which and we were just sitting there i was at i had the window uh i was a full draw and I was waiting for the guide to say shoot. And he was trying to figure out which end was which because both ends were covered up with um, trees and bramble and upturned roots and everything. And uh, But just clearly the massive, massive buffalo. And sure enough, he turned and span and spun and ran out. And it was, it was everything you'd expect it to be. But uh, luckily went the other direction. So that could definitely get the heart rate going, you know, kind of walking right up on something that you're looking for, but not expecting to see that close. And we hunted down a little further, a few hundred yards, quarter mile, something like that, maybe a little bit further. And he uh, stopped, he's got the binoculars up. And I thought what he said was, that looks like a buffalo. And I said, yeah, that sure, yeah, yeah, it sure does. And I was thinking that rock really looks like a Buffalo. 
And we start walking, and we're walking, and we're getting closer to it. And he glasses it, and we walk a little closer. And, you know, we close 100 yards, 150 yards. And uh, now we're, you know, 80 yards away. And he looks at me. He's like, yeah, that is a good buffalo. And I'm like, oh, you said it is a buffalo. I'm like, oh, whoops. Uh, I guess I'll put on the sneaky feet now. And uh, we <laughs> it was it was on the next um, – ridge over and the wind was precarious precarious um so we close up to 40 yards and there's a down log and he puts the gun up on it and he said if that thing takes one step the other direction we're going to lose it forever like it's straight down there's no there's nothing there so with the wind the way it is, what you're going to have to do is walk underneath my bullet path and creep up to the bottom of the, the river bank and then raise up and shoot and then get back down. Because if it comes toward you, I'm going to have to shoot over your head. So I'm like, huh, all those years I spent in the army as a, a, a machine gunner and I, I got to shoot over other people's heads. It's like, now it's my chance to... Uh, see the other side of the coin here. Um, so the good news was being a riverbed, it was all sand there. So I just slid down the bank, you know, 40 yards away from this bull, um, run right across, uh, keeping that, uh, little bit of brush that was on my left in the way, uh, get up there and all of a sudden, here I am, 19 yards away. He's got no idea I'm there. And I got this perfect spot on his hide, right where I need to shoot. And I'm like, huh? I've been preparing for this for years. Game time. And uh, put an arrow on the string and come back to full anchor. And I mean, just everything, right? Feet are planted, everything square fully extended, pinching in the back, got my focus on the spot. Like everything was perfect. And I let go of the string and the arrow went perfect. And it hit with a thump and buried up to the fletch. And immediately that critter was spinning around and I shrunk down. I, I had the, the berm of the hill with enough gap for my eyes and then the rim of my boonie hat. And as his eyes locked on mine, because I, I assume he knew I wasn't there before, he's staring straight at me at 19 yards and I can see the blood spurting back out the entrance hole lots and starts to look a little shaky quickly. I mean, within a second or two. And I thought, Oh my goodness, he's going to fall right back over. And instead he took a big lunge off the opposite bank. And I heard a boom and a, bullet whizzed over my head and then the crashing 
Guide got up to me, and by then the, the crashing had stopped. And 20 yards of, of him running up. And he said, that arrow's perfect. He said, I, I tried for a shot, but I think I missed. And we ran up. I quickly paced off 19 yards, looked straight down. And uh, it was already down in the bottom of the, the river. So um, with the distance traveled and the distance rolled and the dis- distance fallen, uh, paced at 80, 80 steps. So it was, it was over basically instantly. And uh, he was done and at rest at the bottom of that hill, and no, no extra shot or or follow up needed. So, well, I know the answer to this, but did he miss? <laughs> yeah, missed it clean. Yeah, not a scratch. <clears throat> so, thank and, goodness. <laughs> so, I go back to the first email I wrote. Uh, I think it was March of 2017, and my expectations to my outfitter is number one goal. I want to kill a buffalo with my longbow with one arrow and nothing more. Number one. That was what I wrote to him almost verbatim. Well, it's perfect. It, Absolutely it, perfect. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's amazing. And I will say, you know, without going into, uh, well, without going into some of the frustrating hunts that I know you've had, um, because, you know, we've talked about a lot of them. I'm really glad this one this one went down the way it yeah. the way it did for you, and I I, I do want to mention I, I want to go back and touch on one thing that you said because sure. you just kind of casually talked through this, but eighty seven at thirty longbow and that is a RD mm-hmm. bow pushing a thousand and what grain arrow one thousand seventy thousand seventy grain arrow at nineteen yards with a two blade cut on contact head that like I said I know you could have shaved with that head before it left your bow. Oh yeah. And it it you got up to the fletch, but but not a pass yeah. No, it, it it I yeah, hit hard bone on the far side and stopped. Um and I know from building the arrows that I build too, just want to make sure people understand the transition between your broadhead the adapter and that footing is it's all pretty much on an, on an even plane. There is, there is no transition there until it comes off the back of that footing where you've got a slight step down. So there's, there's really nothing on the front end of that arrow to create any friction at all. Oh uh, no, there's it's by design. There's no drag. Right. So yeah, no, that's, that, that, that's that tough head goes in three to one, 60,000 thick, um, standard feral diameter, it steps immediately down to my footing, which I think is 2219. So we have a, a greater than 5% decrease in um, diameter. You know, we talk about ratio. Uh, and then it steps down onto the carbon with a smooth transition. Um, the shaft itself, I removed the uh, label from the outside with acetone. Um, I mean, it's been buffed out. There's no resistance on that at all. Um, in case I could have got a pass through, uh, I glued down the lead edges of the fletching. I sanded the lead edge of the fletch. And then when I, um, attached the, the feather to the arrow, I super glued a a smooth ramp onto the front of each feather. Um, yeah, it's, that arrow was absolutely designed to do exactly what it did. Every piece of it. So, 
Um, and we talked about this a little bit, but and I know that you're not through hunting yet, so I, I do want to give you a little bit of time to touch on some of that. But you also got to do a little um, penetration testing before mm-hmm. you actually went on this hunt while you were in Australia. So uh, you want to go into that just a little bit? Yeah. So you know, I mentioned those scrub bulls before. Um, now the interesting thing, like take a buffalo, it has a an inch of extremely uh, thick hide. You you cannot imagine the actual problems that you can have with just the hide alone before you even get to the bone. Uh, scrub bulls have very thin skin, like a cow, right? But the bone is very dense. You're talking about a, you know whatever, 1,500, 2,000 pound animal versus a, a, a 1,000 to 1,500 pound animal. Um, so the bones on them are extremely dense. So we had a, a scrub bull down. Uh, so we had a, a, a fresh carcass and I wanted to test my gear out. And I said, okay, uh, show me the very best place to shoot this animal and show me the very worst. And the guide marked you know, two axes, one like straight over a rib that would go through, I should be able to breach and one over, you know, the thickest part of the shoulder. And we all made bets, right? Like, okay. So I I shot the rib and went through, it stopped on the far side again. So no problem there. Did exactly what I hoped. Uh, again, five yards down animal, you know, no control variables to worry about. The guess, the guesses from, for the shoulder were everything from, it will fall out, to, um, I will pass through and I bet I get twenty inches. That was my guess, right? I'm highly confident in my gear. Uh, I pulled back, and, I shot that arrow into that thing's shoulder, and its penetration was about one inch. It did not get through the bone, uh, did not fracture, you know, we did not, did not blow the bone apart. Um, it stopped a cold. And the interesting thing to me is when I, I mean, and this is no slam on tough head, clearly I, um, have a, a, a certain amount of confidence with them given what I was taking it into. But there was so much force, right? It didn't break the arrow. It didn't snap off at the insert. You know, none of that happened. It twisted the actual broadhead. Just from the inertia. Yeah. So, like, if you look down the cutting um, edge, you know, your knife edge, if you will, and it should be perfectly straight, this has now got a a turn to it. uh, About an inch in, about a, a third of the way down the broadhead. So that bone just clamped on it and that, that force was, it's amazing. I mean, I can't, so the fact that that arrow didn't break, it's just, it tells me that I accomplished everything I intended to do with my build and my tune. And that is a, excuse me, that is a single bevel broadhead. And you and I both are, are big believers in the, the the bones splitting capability of a single bow. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've seen it. So I, I couldn't believe I didn't bust that thing. Wow. Could not believe. I'll send you a picture. Maybe we'll make it the uh, the episode uh, photo. 
but it shows you a buffalo knuckle laying on my quiver. And it's, it's bigger than your fist. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, there's, there's some massive bones in there, but, uh, yeah, anyway, so, um, luckily with the Buffalo, I got to put one arrow where it mattered and got to take care of it right quick. So, so give us, give us some details about the, about the size of the animal as much as you can. I know obviously you couldn't weigh it or anything like that, but did Uh they, did they give you any estimates on the, on the weight? Um, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, what size was the, was the horns? So, uh, of course we're, we're, it's, it's all just estimates eyeballing. Uh, however, um, you know, one of the guides is, taken um, something around a thousand buffalo with clients uh, and his own hunts over the, the last few decades. Uh, and so when he says that's right about a thousand pounds, that's right about a thousand pounds. So um, body size, uh, less weight than other buffalo, right? I mean, Argentina, you might have a, a fenced up uh, bull that's going to go 2,000 pounds. Um, but I'll tell you what, that thing was uh, low center of gravity and dense. Uh, you know, you've seen the pictures. I mean, it's, you're a thousand pounds. And to me, I'm thinking somewhere, you know, like moose size, right. But uh, the, the density of that, that thing, it's a, it's a little tank. Uh, oh, and then for inches, uh, I think we, we, uh, put a tape on it and put it somewhere around 83. So, um, I think Safari Club wants uh, 96. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. Uh, for their books, um, this place says, you know, high 90s is the goal. Um, they do take a 100-inch bull or a few each year. So they're out there. I mean, I, I, did, I did spend some time chasing one of them. Um, but, you know, for this guy, he was 83. Uh, he was already starting to broom off. So he was a mature bull, just his particular genetics. He was never going to be a giant bull and he was actually starting to lose inches already, which, you know, to me, that's the the kind of bull that you want to go after, right? You're uh, prime or past prime instead of coming into prime. And, um, and it's, it's the hunt is the trophy, you know, that's that. What, what comes back for my wall is going to be a reminder of the hunt and, you know, the hunt is the experience. So, and I was about to say, it doesn't sound like you're overly disappointed about record no. books or anything like that. No, so. no, no, that's not, I mean, it's nice to take a, a good animal and, uh, I know, I think we spend too much time talking about, talking about inches in books, but that's, uh, that's just me. Yeah. We're on the, we're on the same page. I mean, uh, you know, I, it's, it's a bit of a quandary for me. Um, but we're on the same page. I'm not even, I'm not even going to go down that, that path, well, but yeah, I, yeah. So you and I know, I mean, that the, the, the point of those books has, I mean, it's critically important in proving that our gear can do what it needs to do. And it establishes a wonderful base of knowledge. So, you know, Hey, 30 years ago, you know, 
there were, there were better bucks being killed than there are now, or this county's in decline, or this state is, you know, increasing. I mean, right. it just, I think, I think it's a great data set and I'm glad we have it. Uh, and I probably should participate in, in contributing my numbers. Um, but that's kind of the limit of it. I, I, I see, I see that. I see, I, that's where I see its value. Sure. I, and that makes sense. I, I get it. And like I said, you and I've, we've talked about this before, so yeah. uh, I kind of know, I kind of know where we stand collectively. So, um, yeah. So last, last thing, unless you've got something else you want to insert here, uh, cause I do want to save, you know, a little bit of time for the, for the rest of the hunt. Cause I did do know you had a little bit more excitement, but, mm-hmm. um, so what happens now with regards to, uh, getting the horns back so that you can have that, that memory on your wall. Yeah. So, um, mentioned the boiling tank in camp. So, uh, that skull, it's kind of fun. I actually got to do uh, a little bit of carving and cutting, um, with a Havilon, um, totally outfitter responsibility, but just kind of wanted to do something. I felt comfortable and pitch in a little bit. Um, so, uh, fleshed out the skull. I'm a European guy. I, every, everything I have in my house is European mount. Um, so it went into the tank the following day, uh, boiled for one hour, knocked the horn off one side, boiled the other, but boiled for another hour, knocked the horn off the other side. Um, the outfitter grabbed a chainsaw and cut the pedestals back a bit. And then that generator, he plugged in the water pump, fired the generator up, and he had a little itty bitty pressure washer in camp. So, and he had a uh, a tarp set up and protective gear and everything. So he basically pinned that skull to the ground, grabbed the pressure washer, and it was basically a mountable skull within 24 hours of me killing that bull. It was a thing of beauty. So what happens now, uh, at the end of season, he'll take every single skull, all the horns, everything loaded on the trailer. And, uh, he has a taxidermist connection. That person will certify skulls, caps, everything, and either ship to somebody's taxidermist or uh, in my case, I'm going to have him go ahead and do the Europeans on the plaque boards and uh, bring those to my importer in Chicago. And I'll just drive down, um, hopefully connect that up with a work trip and pick it up at O'Hare. So uh, that should be, that's the plan roughly. But it'll still take, you know, um, eight months to a year to get it done. But there's all kinds of bureaucracy and paperwork and things to do, uh, to get it done. So that's the plan there. Should we talk more hunting? Yeah, let's talk more hunting. Get out of that, man. That, that <laughs> logistic stuff's just, I, I almost nodded off there on you. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. let me tell you about form. No. Uh, so, so I get my bull and that is the end of day one. So all these stocks, other stocks we didn't talk about. I mean, all of that happened in the first day and a half. So I'm like, okay, 
I'm doing good. The other two guys did not have any shot opportunities. So I said, here's my plan. I will um, work on the bowl. I will, you know, start working on the, the boiling. I will um, do a little fishing for barramundi, you know, there in the crocodile pond. Uh, so I had stuff to do, right? So I did not hunt the next day. And that let the guides and the hunters kind of go one-on-one. And that way, every bull they saw was a stalk, where the day before, they'd see a bull, one guy would sit, one guy would stalk, and then they'd trade back and forth, right, between uh, the father and son. So those guys went out, uh, did not catch a barramundi, saw some crocs, uh, saw some crazy lizards, uh, a lot of cool parrots, all kinds of stuff like that. Um but that afternoon, Tim got his bull, and he got it way back where the Land Cruiser couldn't go. So that ended up being a uh, whole bunch of packing, and uh, he likes shoulder mounts. Like talk about how heavy that hide is. So the cape's well over a hundred pounds, and we got we got meat we've got cape we've got skull we've got horns we've got backpacks we got bows we got embankments up and down these dry river banks so uh, we did a fair amount of work on day two uh day three i went out and did a little pig hunting the guys went out stalking and i think that day if i remember right i think they said they each got more than 10 stocks but they didn't loose an arrow. Um, now I could I could be mixing this up a little bit. I should have reviewed my hunting journal before I, I got on. Uh, but I know day four, we did a um, drive around the property. So we were going to do, um, there's a, a, a lagoon and waterfall that is crocodile free. So we were going to go do a swim and kind of take a take a uh, a good soak and uh, midday, and we're going to do a little bear Monday fishing, and those guys were going to stalk some bulls. I was going to look for some pigs up in the swamp, but basically we got up in the morning at first light, and we started driving, and uh, I missed uh, I missed a shot at a feral cat. Um, had a couple of failed stocks. Um, tried to catch a barramundi. Had lunch. Tried not to get eaten by crocodiles. Uh, took a swim in the lagoon. It's just you know pretty crazy that we could spend from dawn to dusk driving. Sometimes you know sixty and eighty kilometers an hour, and never leave the ranch. So. Um, it, it's, you know, whatever, 600,000 acres. It's a big, big place. Um, now during this, uh, we spotted a bull at one point, just, (laughs) it looked like it was in a dirt patch, uh, out there browsing. And the guide's like, you know, there's one tree out there and shade. And it's hot. It was the hottest day we were out there. He's like, Jake, you haven't got your bull yet. 
why don't you follow me and let's go set up behind that tree and see if it comes to the shade. Something I'm paraphrasing, give or take, but they do, they run out there hundreds of yards. Um, and, uh, his dad and the, me and the, the guy, other guy are all sitting in there with our binoculars and watching him run across this floodplain and hide behind this tree and everything's all set and he's putting an arrow on a string and, uh, this bull just starts walking straight at him and it's hundreds of yards out. It just keeps getting closer and closer and closer. And they, they set up on the, on the perfect spot and watched him pull his bow up and bring it to anchor and let the arrow go and watch the arrow hit the bull. It was the coolest thing as a, you know, observer, a non hunter to just see that one time in a million when it all comes together. Um, so yeah, Jake got his bull on day four and, uh, yeah, that was a, an awesome day. Uh, day five got back to, uh, going after pigs, uh, tried a few more spots, uh, you know, tried to, tried to pull it together. Normally pigs are almost bycatch, right? I mean, it's just the thing you get by accident. Uh, but with the drought, they were extremely constrained into, um, you know, a small area and trying to find them was tough. So, uh, didn't see any, get any that day. Uh, day six was the last full day, uh, to hunt. And one of the guides and I struck out, he knew about a, a little, little secret, uh, spring and it was probably four or five miles back to it. And it was totally dry. There was nothing there. Uh, there was a little water hole nearby. We, uh, spooked out a, a boar on the way in. We saw scrub bulls. We saw lots of buffalo. I almost shot a second buffalo nearly on accident. A bull had him at about 12 yards. Um, it just about happened. And wasn't really going after those, but um, I thought, boy, if it if it works out too good, I'll, I, I'd have to I'd have to try. <laughs> um, yeah, if you would have turned a little bit more, it would have been a different story, I think. But at that point, the, the guide's like, you know, you know your drill with hunting pigs and, you know, we're just making twice as much noise and twice as much scent. So I'm going to drop back and get on the downwind opposite bank and, you know, just kind of follow you. Why don't you work, you know, as much of this river system as you need to get back into pigs? So he kind of let me work ahead and on my own. And uh, several miles I saw saltwater croc out sunning or the biggest one I saw the whole trip and surprised let me get uh, a lot closer to them than the alligators that I'm used to. So I got a few good pictures and uh, started seeing pig sign once I got down below that water hole. So then I kind of thought I was getting in the zone. So I was working these ridgeline trails that were predominantly pigs and I kicked out a small bull buffalo at short range. Um, 
which kind of got my blood going. So I was, I was a little shaky about how close I ended up on him. And one ridge over, not 10 minutes later, uh, I saw a hairy ear stick up out of a log. And I said, oh, man, I know that ear. <laughs> That's a pig. <laughs> and uh, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it was probably you know several days and many miles into it. Um, and I was in soft sand, but I just crept right up and, uh, the smallest pig farthest away stood up. It had line of sight on me and the one closest was by far the biggest. And when it stood up, uh, had two trees side by side, a dirt berm, uh, between them. And then 12 inches higher, I had this branch from a different tree. So I had this perfect window. It was about a foot square. And I said to myself, that is about the perfect spot. And I just anchored and loosed, and the arrow went right through. And the hog spun and took two steps and immediately started falling down the riverbank. And when it did, I mean, it went, it, it was, it, by the time it hit the bottom, it was done. So, um, but the commotion, the pig between the two pigs, uh, two other pigs stood up and it's 15 yards broadside and looking straight down the, away from me. And I'm like, Oh, <sighs> sorry, I, I can't pass this up. So, uh, <laughs> grab the next arrow, wheel back anchor. And I'm like, there's a spot. And I let go and zips right through and that one like starts to look at me looks at the uh arrow stuck in the ground looks at me looks at the arrow turns halfway around knee shake falls over done like so what three four days of pig hunting is done and over 10 seconds i have two hogs down uh, within 20 yards of each other. And I put chase on the third one and could not get close enough to, I, we're just a little over 30 yards. Uh, and it wasn't quite perfectly broadside. So I let that one go and, uh, didn't try, but yeah, that was, that was me saying, okay, I, I've got pigs in Australia. So, and they were nice sized pigs. Yeah, 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 yeah. The first one was uh, around 200, and I'd say the second one was probably a little under 150. Um, so not not giants. Um, I only saw five pigs the whole time. Um, the other two were both bigger than these. Uh, but not by a lot. So, uh, but yeah, so there's, um, there's my pig story and <clears throat> went and grabbed the guide and, uh, started packing them out and got back to camp. The other two guys did not get a shot on day six. So at this point I've punched all my tags, uh, and some, and I've fished a lot for barramundi, 
and I've got to had a day reading in camp and I've, it's, it's been wonderful. And they were both still trying to get a second bowl. And, uh, so the next morning we get up and I start packing up my bow and packing up my gear and all of that. And, uh, they both went out and an hour later, Jake was back in camp with his guide. Uh, he found a Buffalo about a mile from camp, snuck up first stock of the day, shot it, fell over and done coming back to look for the truck to, to get it out. And, um, so we sat there for a good many hours and about one o'clock, uh, Tim and his guide came back and they had gone back to where I had been the morning of the first day and saw that hundred incher and very late in the morning, they stumbled across what was probably the same bowl and Tim got his shot. And so we have, uh, three modest, uh, bulls and, uh, four modest, four modest Buffalo. And then one, he got a monster. So, uh, that was the way he ended the trip. So for him, I think it was perfect ending, right? He got basically seven straight days of hunting and, and two Buffalo. And, uh, Jake was very happy, uh, even with his first Buffalo, cause it's the first one he's ever got. And then he got another and, uh, and I got to seal the deal with my longbow on a, on a bull and a pair of hogs to boot. So it was a great, great trip. Well, it sounds like just an absolutely amazing trip and man, I couldn't, have, I couldn't any, I wished any better for you. I really couldn't. Thanks. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't plan to go back and hunt Australia again after this. Um, you know, part of me says when you have like that ultimate experience, kind of like when I went fly fishing in the Arctic circle for pike and you know, you, you catch a thousand pike in five days and you know, multiple, uh, book size fish. How do you, if you like how you, you can't plan to top that experience. You just, right. you just embrace it and say, you know, I had this amazing trip and it was everything that I dreamed it could be and more, you know, with Australia, I, I, I had a ball, I had a blast. Uh, logistically it's hard to get there. I mean, I was waking up at three o'clock every morning, like wide eyed and couldn't, couldn't sleep and coming back. It was as bad or worse. Um, takes a lot of time to get there. It takes a lot of time to get back. It's there's, there's, you're putting a lot in to do that adventure. And when it turns out that good, you just kind of go, wow, kind of want to keep that just the way it is. Well, we've got, we've got some other hunts that we, we, uh-huh. we talked about trying to do too. So, uh, well, that's true. Um, uh, I know <clears throat> this year's, this year's an off year for me. I don't, I don't know that I'm going to hunt anywhere outside of the state this year. Um, Yep. Gonna kind of see how things go. I might still try to make the uh, hunt up in Michigan this year. Uh, I'm just gonna kind of play it by ear, but that would be the only hunt I do out of state this year. Um, but I'm really, really wanting us to think about trying to do um, 
the bear with with Jerry maybe maybe next year. Um, yep. I don't know. Like I said, we need to we need to sit down and talk and try to put some put some things on a, a calendar. Uh, we see. I, I know I do better once I have a a goal. You know. Well, and I'll, I'll be honest. Like this was the last big thing, the last thing requiring the eighty-seven pound bow. And I do have a list, right? I got, I got the, the things I want to do. Um, but now it's kind of like, okay, well, it's time to reevaluate. You know, what, what do I want to do next year and uh, the year after that, right? I got right. some points building up in a few different states. Uh, I've got some, some invitations that I think I want to take people up on. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of thinking about hunting Georgia. It's been a few years. Well, yeah, we've we've talked about it a little bit. You know, you're welcome. I'm actually mm-hmm. uh, I'm hoping. So the next the next July is just going to be as it always is full. But uh, once July has passed, um, I'm really hoping to to get some stuff set up uh, in August. So you know, be ready for our season opener. Looks like I'm I'm going to be going out to uh, Redmond right after our season opens. But hmm. part of me's part of me's a bit disappointed about that. But part of me's thinking, well, at least it's during the week. And if I got to go, I'd much rather go when it's you know 90 degrees as opposed to yeah. when it gets down in the 60s. So, um, but yeah, we can make it happen, man. Let's just again, let's figure out a, a, a time, put it on the calendar, and. Uh, you know, Nick said he wasn't coming back. He's he's going to come back and, and go fishing. So, at least it'll be dry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, and I, I'm thinking the three of us are eventually going to end up with some fly rods in our hands. So, we should probably, as we're talking about our trips uh, and our plans, we should probably start trying to work on that. We we definitely should, and that is one thing. You know, if if I come up to, to Michigan for a, a whole week next year for Compton's, It'll probably be a you know a, a like a Saturday to Saturday type thing, so mm-hmm. um, you know or Sunday to Saturday I should say, but you know I think we could probably work in some uh, at least a at least a long afternoon trip or something while I'm while I'm up there. We'll see, but we definitely need to do it. We definitely okay. need to do it. So, well, Tom, we're uh, we're creeping up on an hour and a half, man. I really uh, do appreciate people aren't asleep. Nah, I really appreciate you sharing the all the details with me because you know I had heard bits and pieces, but I hadn't heard everything. So it was really good to uh, to to hear the full details for the full week. I'm I'm sure everybody else is going to enjoy it. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for jumping on and and chatting. And I think this would be a good one for the archives. Same here. Same here. All right, thank you, buddy, and for everyone listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we'll have a, another great episode next week. In the meantime, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And please take the time to leave us a rating and review uh, on your favorite podcast app. Uh, excuse me, your favorite podcast application. We greatly appreciate it. And it does help us when it comes to, you know, working with our sponsors and, and helping to bring more content to you in the future. So thank you so much. Have a great night, everyone. Good night. Thanks.